0: Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study.
1: We've been engaging with the words of Deuteronomy. We've been engaging with the words of Dr. Micha Goodman, um, writing about Deuteronomy and how he understands the agenda of the Deuteronomist. Who in his mind is Moses? Um, doesn't matter. We don't have to agree. We can have a friendly disagreement about who the Deuteronomist is. But um, Micah's insights into what the agenda and concerns of the Deuteronomist are um, are the same uh, as we might come to if we think it's somebody writing at the king at the time of King Josiah. Speaking of kings, um, that is part of our parsha this week. So if you look on your Zoom. Uh, on the Zoom screen, and you see the blue, you see a profile of RBG, and you see in there tzedek tzedek tzedek, justice, justice shall you pursue. Uh, the theme of much of Deuteronomy is how to achieve that. How do we achieve a society that is reflective of one that is pursuant of justice? So we're going to look a little bit at at what the Deuteronomist is going to do this week. Remember what we talked about last week. We talked about the fact that the Deuteronomist is very concerned with what's going to happen to the Israelites once they reach the land and are successful. The Deuteronomist is deeply concerned about what will happen when the Israelites have power. Because power tends to corrupt, as does wealth. So, and why? Wealth corrupts because I'm now somebody who deserves this. And that is different from somebody who doesn't. And then we treat those people differently. And the Deuteronomist is concerned that the Israelites should use their wealth. It's not that you can't have wealth. Wealth is a good thing. Wealth is a blessing. It's a good thing. The Deuteronomist is concerned that wealth is going to lead to, to a, a way of behaving in the world that's going to oppress those who do not have wealth. That is the big concern of the Deuteronomist. So, so we looked last week at the ways that um, that the Deuteronomist um, is helping, or Moses, so whoever we want to put this in the mouth of, is helping the Israelites to understand how they're supposed to, to approach having power and having wealth. So last week was about power. We talked about Shabbat. We talked about festivals. We talked about all those ways that the Israelites were commanded now to do so that they include as much as possible those who don't have in their celebrations, in their sacrifices, in all of those things to feed those who don't have. So the widow, the orphan, Your, your male and female slaves, right? All of those folks, you make Shabbat so that they get to rest like you do. Shabbat as the great equalizer. Um, so that you liberate as God liberated us from slavery. So that's a lot of what we talked about last week. Where did we end last week? We ended last week with sacrifice and, um, all of that can only happen where now? In the temple. Where's the temple? They don't have it yet, but we know where does the temple wind up being? In Jerusalem. If you believe the Deuteronomist is writing in the time of Josiah, the temple's in Jerusalem. Right? If you're Moses, you're imagining. But we're, now Deuteronomy says you can only sacrifice at the temple. What did that do? So we know it's centralized worship. What, what else did it do? Micha argues. One of the things it starts to do is it lowers the power and the presence of the priesthood. Cause we talked about now you don't have priests serving at local shrines. People used to bring their sacrifice to, you know, in Tel Aviv, in Yafo, in where, where Akko, in Beersheba, they could bring their sacrifices and the local priesthood would, right, preside over those sacrifices. Now, if you only have sacrifice happening in Jerusalem, You've, A, lowered the presence of the priesthood and its activity among regular everyday folk. What else have you done about eating meat? It's open to everybody. You can eat it whenever you want, wherever you want. What does that do to the act of eating meat? Micha argues that it secularizes meat eating. So now it's a secular, regular Bologna sandwich event. What you've done is you are taking those religious rituals out of people's daily lives. So if you had to sacrifice meat and you had to get a priest and blah, and you went through all that and you shared it with your village, all that, that was a special occasion and the priests presided over that. So religion and the cult was part of people's normal life. It wouldn't be daily, you know, obviously, because you wouldn't kill an animal daily that's way too expensive that's extravagant right but let's say you killed one every couple of months right and fed everybody but if you got everybody in the town doing that every couple of months possibly the priesthood is officiating daily at somebody's sacrifice so now you've taken the the cult out of people's daily lives so it seems it could seem like you're making sacrifice more special because now it's only happening in Jerusalem. But Micha says, no, Deuteronomy is making the cult far less a part of people's lives. Okay. All right. So let's see the other moves um, that relate to this. Um, so we're going to go to Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. All right. So now we're going to, we, we looked a little bit at the institution of what's impacted the priesthood and what's happening with the priesthood. Let's look a little bit now at Micha directs us in our Torah portion this week, um, to look at what's happening with, um, politics and power vis-a-vis the king. <speaking in Hebrew> So when you get to the land that God is giving you as an inheritance, the yashavta, and you settle it, you settle in it, and you say, so first of all, you have to get there, then you have to settle it. These are the conditions that have to be met. You have to get there and you have to settle it. Um, then, and you say to yourself, I will set a king over me, as do all the other nations. You shall be free to set a king over yourself. Verse 15. One chosen by your God, yod heh Be sure to set as king over yourself. Who? One of your own people. You must not set a foreign foreigner over you. One who is not your kin. All right. What is the word for kin, though? It's a very specific kinship term. What is the term here? Achicha. Your brother. What does brother imply? For sure. <laughs> well, d- newsflash of the Department of Duh, right? We're talking about ancient Israel. Yeah. So male, what else? What is what is family, connection, equal? Very important. Achicha, your brother, your equal. So already we know something about the position of king. It is your brother. It is your equal. Somebody you have a connection to. But the but the understanding is that it's a parallel plane. No, exactly. Exactly. Not somebody who just somehow got royal because you were born royal. That's going to change, though, of course.
0: Um, it says chosen by God. Was this the source for the divine right of kings?
1: It's a very interesting question because that's all that's said. We don't know how that is, right? We don't know how, the, how we know this is chosen by God, right? Moreover, oh, so some, someone, so who are you not supposed to set over you? Um, nochri, someone who is a foreigner, but we're going to look a little bit at the word nohri. Um, it comes later to be used as the term for Christian, Elena. All right. Da, 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 da. All right. 16. Moreover, he shall not keep many horses or send people back to Egypt to add to his horses. Since Yudhebubhe has warned you, you must not go back that way again. He shall not have many wives, lest his heart go astray, nor shall he amass silver and gold to excess. When he is seated on his royal throne, pay attention what is he going to do he shall have a copy of this teaching written for him on a scroll by the levitical priests let it remain with him and let him read in it all his life so that he may learn to revere his god YHWH to observe faithfully every word of this teaching as well as these laws what is teaching here in hebrew torah HaTorah Hazot, this Torah. So you'll see in a lot of places that the king is required to write a Sefer Torah. No. HaTorah Hazot, this Torah, meaning Deuteronomy. To observe faithfully every word of HaTorah Hazot, this Torah, as well as all these laws. Thus, he will not act haughtily toward his fellows or deviate from the instruction to the right or to the left to the end that he and his descendants may reign long in the midst of Israel. So that's also an indication that it is inherited, he and his descendants. So it is going to be inherited. Yes, we know of the house of David. So so according to Micha, um, the, he has, a, the, I told you, a lecture series uh, from Tikvah. You can sign up for free. Um, to watch it. It's an amazing lecture series on Deuteronomy by Micha Goodman. He says that when we look at the ancient Near East and we look at the role of the king, one of the most important roles of the king in the ancient Near East was that the king was the high priest, right? So the king functioned as the priest, so as a special relationship to the gods. Um, And then, you know, It mitigates between the people and the gods. That that is a very common role in the ancient Near East for the king. So what does that make stand out to you about who's supposed to be your king?
0: Here, the separation of church and state.
1: Separation of church and state here. Aaron is not the king. Aaron's the high priest. But you can set one of your brothers, meaning one of y'all, over you as king, Aaron remains high priest. There's a separation of powers here that Deuteronomy is very concerned about, that that stay the case, right? So the the monarchy itself as an institution, this is the only place it's talked about. Okay? This is the only place we, we get a mention, you know, but w- this is the only place the monarchy is talked about. And in the very place that it's talked about, what it talks about is, limiting the role of the king, limiting the power um of the king. So we hear a lot, you know, about um about prophets and about other folks. We don't hear a lot about this this king business. Um so when you come to the land and you settle it and you want to appoint uh, a king, some of our commentators say, okay, that's fine. You know, Israel's finally going to be like all other nations. That's a good thing. That's what you do. Um, and some of our commentators believe this is a bad thing, that God is not happy about this, that that's why it's phrased when you get there and you say to yourself, I want a king, God is giving in to it, but it's not the desire. It's not, it's not the order of things. This is not, it's not God who says you should have a king. It's like, you just, y'all decide you want a king. Okay. Okay. You can have a king, but it can't be someone foreign and it can't be somebody who we're going to look into the details a little bit more about what they can't, what the king can't
0: do. But it doesn't say that you have to have. Exactly. And what are the choices did the people have to govern themselves?
1: So there could have been been councils of elders. Uh, I think there should be a council of grandmothers running the world. And then I think the world would look very, very, very different than it does. They don't. Linda. Oh, this sort of sounds like current elections. I mean, how do you, how is this king chosen? We're not told. Okay. We're not told here. I think it's one of the arguments for saying this is written when there's already a king, right? It's not written in the desert where there, you know, then there probably would be something about that, right? Um, so Susan argues that with a council of grandmothers, we'd all be a lot more indulged. Yes, but in the ways I would hope that make us better people, right, Susan? And not in the ways that make us uh, dangerously narcissistic.
2: I want to say if if these laws
1: or suggestions were followed by today's rulers and also no, no, wait, of, 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 and also like the heads of corporations, we'd have a much better world. You're not supposed to use the position to amass horses. You're not supposed to amass money you're not supposed to do a math why it's not i I can't hear the question can someone can someone down there hear oh sorry i'll I'll just i'll write a message you're asking why the king shouldn't have a lot of horses and silver and gold and stuff no um i'm saying the world would be a better place yes the world would be a better place if those in power right didn't have access to a whole bunch of stuff that Torah tells us corrupts us if we're not careful. Presidents and CEOs. There you go. Okay.
0: God yes. seems to have changed. Before this, he said, "Go in and kill all the people in the land." Yeah. And now, God is
1: saying, "Be nice to." No. Where, where's the contradiction, yeah. George? Kill, they kill the Paganites! Get rid of all those pagans. You're not you're not supposed to be nice to everybody. Of course, we take in people all the time,
0: strangers. We welcome to our house. who
1: live with the Israelites among the Israelites and observe Israelite cult traditions. Yeah, what, what do you see here that's about the Jebusites and the other folks that are supposed to get gone? No, but
0: the the inconsistency of of killing a group and and not just having them work for you as slaves like other people. its it's, And this
1: says be very nice to people. Okay, so, okay, I don't want to go off on too big a tangent. Okay, but George, 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 look at our society. Don't we say we should be nice to people? Shouldn't there be justice? All men are created equal? tell that to a young black man being stopped by a cop. There is nothing about human nature that says we treat everybody the same. We should, but don't we say lock up criminals? Don't we say kill people who commit treason? Don't we say like, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of mitigating factors about who we treat, how? Yes. Right. I mean, every, of course we're contradictory. We're humans, but the, the, the text is very clear. You have to conquer the land. That means you have to kick out the people who are there. Th- then, when you have settled and made it Israelite, this is the law that you're supposed to do in your settlements with the people who are living with you, among you, observing your laws. Right? We we have this wonderful declaration. Of we have this wonderful everyone created equal. After we killed all the natives and put them on reservations, where to this day, we deny them their rights. I, I don't you don't you see what i'm saying it's like you have the as it should be and then you have what actually it's is just, written also in what is like oh, they have to be on the reservation that's the law well on this under the same constitution that says all men are created equal really it's
0: a justification for the atomic use of the atomic bomb in World War
1: II. exactly exactly so i mean it i'm not saying there isn't contradiction i'm saying it's it it's the same contradiction we've always had, right. As human beings that we say, we, we put out our ideals. And then when you actually try to implement that, right. It, it looks very different. Um, So the King is not supposed to be nice to everybody. God forbid, right. The King just isn't supposed to be so full of the King self. Um, We accept the stranger when they agree with us. Well said, Dana. Well said, um, and we accept the stranger when they agree to live by our laws. That's very different than the pagans who are living by different laws, right? Who might tempt the Israelites to live that way? Okay. So let's go back to our text. Um, so the king has to be Israelite. You're going to choose a brother from among you. So notice it's not father language, says Micha, right? Cause that implies already whether you love or hate your father it implies a hierarchy right so brother language is used to break this idea of hierarchy um and it that's a metaphor that that really he says reflects the political philosophy of deuteronomy you can't have a lot of wives as the king a lot of horses or a lot of gold and silver so why don't you want to have too many wives so that it doesn't lead you astray. Okay, really, what does it prevent you from doing as the king? Well, yeah, you well, well, you can procreate. Like that doesn't seem to be the challenge. Israelite men can have more than one wife. So you know, it seems, um, according to Micha, anyway, that you don't want too many wives because you don't want the king through his family to have too many political alliances, because that could lead to the king having. Too much power, right? If y'all don't agree with me and don't agree to do what I say, I'm going to get my brother-in-law, who's part of the Egyptian royal family, to have a little chat with Pharaoh, right? So the king, if if the king has too many alliances through marriage, can become too powerful. You can't have too many horses. Why is Torah concerned about how many horses a king has? Exactly right. The king cannot amass an army that is so big that it threatens the people.
0: And the king has to live under the law, which the king has there.
1: Right. So we're gonna get there. It says exactly the, right. We're gonna get it, there. It's legal. We're gonna get there. So no, can't have a lot of horses um, because we don't want too big a military that the king controls. And gold and silver. Why why is Torah concerned that the king shouldn't have too much gold and silver? How did he get this gold and silver? Right, Robert? How did he get the gold and silver? Taxation. You shouldn't overtax the people. The king shouldn't overtax the people and stress the people out to pay for the king's luxuries. You know, one theory is that that's the reason the unified north and south, this unified kingdom of Israel fell. Was because Solomon overtaxed the people and weakened Israel from the inside, which made her vulnerable to attacks from the outside. That and infighting and hating each other and polarization brought down the Israelite experiment. Just saying. So, the first place, Micha says, that we get a discussion about uh, the monarchy. Already, it's about limiting it, right? And comparing it to the uh, ancient Near Eastern traditions, it's very, very different. Um, and so the other thing he points out is he says, when you get to the land and you settle the land, then you can choose a king from among you. What does that mean? The king is not the founder of the land and the country and the people, right? So often, right, the king is given that title of, of as the one who founded this right, business. You have to wait till after you get there, after you're settled, after everything's set up, the king comes from among y'all who got here together.
0: All right.
1: So important, like we said, that the king is not from the tribe of Levi, is not a priest separating, like, political power, religion from uh, this arm of the government. Um, and so the limited power, to, to Bert's point, is that this This limiting of power is specific in lots of ways that we just discussed. And that, like Bert said, the king has the book of Deuteronomy written and then is supposed to have it and is supposed to read it and is supposed to follow all the laws in it. This is the basis for liberal democracy. The king is subject not to a direct relationship with the divine, not to the magic of the cult the king is subject to what? the law what about um, their children inheriting the throne? they do but that begins the bad cycle doesn't it? it could depends on who the kid is depends who the kid's kid is right? David chooses Solomon doesn't give it to his firstborn David chooses Solomon right? Because he prefers Batsheva. Remember the one he saw bathing on the roof? He sends her husband to the front lines. Dead now. Mm -hmm. That's whose son becomes king. Okay. So I shouldn't have too many wives as the king. The king in our text is not described as building monuments, winning wars, beating up. Right. Is not, is not described as building an empire. Our, King, says Micha Goodman, how is our king described? Is someone who reads a book every day. All the days of his life he's supposed to be reading. HaTorah Hazot, Deuteronomy. He's a yeshiva booker. That's who the Israelites have as a king. They have a yeshiva booker. Right? This is very Jewish. This is very, yeah, not anymore, unfortunately. All right. So um then he... He brings us to Deuteronomy 19 and 20. What was that again? Deuteronomy 19 and 20. He's reading the book every day of his life. So he will not act haughtily towards his fellows or deviate from this Torah that he and his descendants may reign long in the midst of Israel. So that he will learn to be in awe of God and not to become proud and think he's above everybody else. The King is always exposed to those who obey his orders and revere him, therefore, what could that do to someone right, right. egomania he exactly becomes an egomania a,
0: a narcissist
1: a narcissist could you imagine possible. could you imagine possible. that it could right so um so reading deuteronomy Micha argues all the all the time every day, reading Deuteronomy keeps reminding the king you are a their brother and you are beholden to this law which includes all the stuff we've talked about protecting the weak the widowed the orphan the hungry the levites who have no land anymore or never had any land but now are kind of unemployed right so um that is that is part of the purpose As Micha is to keep the king who always has people saying Yes, your highness. Yes, your highness. Yes, your highness. From getting to right full of himself by remembering every day that he is subject to this book. He is subject to this instruction. He's subject to this law. So Amicha argues that often the boldest statement made by a text is in what it does not say. And he says, Um, what does this not say about the court and the prophet? It says we're supposed to obey them. You have to listen to the words of the prophet and you have to listen to the rulings of the judge in the court system set up here in Deuteronomy. What, what does it not say about the king that you have to obey the king? What does it say? The king has to obey the law. We are not told we have to obey the king. I mean, it's assumed, I'm sure. But we're told you have to obey the word of the prophet. You have to obey the word of the judge. You don't. It doesn't say you have to obey the word of the king. It does say the king has to obey the law. Law. Um, And often in uh in the ancient Near East, the king would use um, their position in the uh religious system to say that what they say goes because the God told them this is what's supposed to happen. So when the king speaks, it's actually in some ways God speaking. Um, and here it's very clear, God has given Deuteronomy, right? And the king is subject the will of God through the law that's given to everyone equally. Okay, 1720, thus he will not act haughtily towards his fellows and deviate from the Torah right or left to the end that he and his descendants may reign long in the land of Israel. If you want a dynasty, what must you do as the king? Follow the law. If you want a dynasty, if you want your sons to reign after you, then You have to keep the law. That is very different, right? As an approach to maintaining power than you make sure you have the biggest army. You make sure you have the best allies in the neighborhood. You make sure of all that so that your son reigns after you or else, right? You're in trouble. You could be overthrown. According to Deuteronomy, the way you stay in power, the way you create a dynasty is that you follow the law that governs all of us i think it's assumed here that it's your son the son of the king reigns not necessarily and we have lots of stories i know judith keeps wanting us to get there we have lots of stories about children who rebel against their father the king know children rebelling like what what um so we have lots of those stories where the 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 son rises up and revolts against the father, who's the king. And then it causes, right, horrible, horrible things to happen. Okay, so Mika reminds us, where is this taking place? This is taking place in Israel. Where is Israel? Between Egypt and Mesopotamia. Between the two places in the ancient Near East that glorify kings. Think about Pharaoh. I mean, come on. Right? You don't get more glorification than that. So Pharaoh, it was just the same in Mesopotamia. The king is the high priest. The king has all those, you know, godly connections and powers. Um, and Micha says, here's this tiny little, (laughs) tiny little nothing kingdom in the middle. Of these two superpowers in the ancient world who glorify the monarchy, who glorify the king, who glorify power, they are empires. Mesopotamia and Egypt are empires. They're not just their country, right? They are entire empires, north and south of Israel. A tiny little country comes and says, uh That is not the way to do it. Um, instead, where they create a system that limits the powers of the king. And for Micha, he says, this is a political revolution in the neighborhood. And for us, as Americans, we should be very attached to this. This is the move that opens the door for democracy. This is the move. So because this is known, it becomes known right throughout the ancient world and certainly Through Christianity, it becomes known even wider. This is what opens the door for democracy is this idea that the highest position in the land, call it king, call it president, call it whatever, the highest power in the land is governed him or herself by the law. Everyone has to go by the law. And we are now. Watching it play out in our time every day on the news, what happens when some folks in power, right, want to challenge the assumptions made by the law to a certain point, right? Now we're seeing that play out. Now we're going to see, now this system is being put to the test. Can it withstand Right, a, a a challenge to to it's a to the law's authority. We'll, we'll see what happens, and who interprets the law, right? So when we get to the part on judges, right, this part is called Shoftim, judges, because Deuteronomy's very concerned about the judiciary. Deuteronomy is very concerned about who gets appointed to be a judge. For those of us who thought, well, yeah, that makes sense. Now, now, I don't know about y'all. I read all of that very differently about the qualifications for a judge. The reason it's so important is because when this is under the most stress possible, who are the ones who are going to protect the, the, you know, the kind of the, not, not just the approach, what am I trying to say? Who are the ones that are going to approach kind of the point, the goal of the law, your judges, your judges, Because it's going to be challenged through the court system. It's that old that judges had to be people you could trust would think of the good of the people and the good of how to apply the law to the situation at hand. That has always been the case for us. We are seeing, you know, the incredible importance of, of having people in the role of judge who we feel are going to truly for the good of the country apply the law and the rulings that are going to come. Yes.
2: I was just thinking about how many of us are thinking about this, like the epitome we are living it today. And then I think, so it, every Shabbat, are we living every situation that we you know read about in the Torah? Or is this like amazing that we are, in a state where, I mean, a state of mind, that this is really being faced directly by every member, not only of our country, the entire world who is above the law. Yes. And it's amazing today how appropriate, did you just choose this for today? This is like amazing. Just saying, like... (laughs)
1: a couple of years ago I was teaching and like every week it was just like, Whoa. And I was like, I didn't write this people. It's like right here. Open your book. I didn't write this. Um, But y'all know Trisha's mom. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Our beloved Trisha. Um, So, um, so thank you. Thank you for Trisha. Um, Yeah. So it's there, there are times where we read Torah and it's like lovely on so many levels to have it apply to us today. There's times we read Torah and go, uh, <laughs> right? Like, Thank thank God we have an understanding and, and something that's been given to us so for so long, an institution of the judiciary that has a check on the power of the executive branch, right, which has a balance, in this case, with the priesthood and the prophet, the role of the prophet. Wait, hang on, Judas got the mic. The awe of the Torah is that it does fit every time. Every week, something makes us think, oh, my goodness, I just had this situation.
0: You know, when you look at exactly what's happening at this time in Israel, who are the judges? Who are the judges that are going to be appointed to be the judges? Is what the legislation that passed going to pass muster with the Supreme Court? This is real. Mm -hmm. Forget about what's happening here. Yeah. This there, it's much closer to reason.
1: Well, I'm not sure it's, I mean, yeah, they're, they're equally. They're equally charged in different ways. Different aspects of the judiciary are are equally charged. So there, the argument and the protests are directly related to a reform of the judiciary. But there's a lot underneath that that is sparking tens of thousands of people being in the streets for this many weeks in a row. So it's not – I just sent out a video. It's on my Facebook page. I'm surprised. I have, like, two hits. I'm like, sure. what happened? So there's this amazing video that went viral in Israel about what the tensions are between the two sides that has nothing to do with the judiciary. It has nothing to do with judicial reform. It has a lot to do with 75 years of history, right? So look at it on my Facebook page. It's on my my KI Facebook page as well. Um, It's an incredible video. I had to watch it like seven times to catch like, all the references you know because it 's subtitled, but it's like wait what what what, what? it goes really fast because it's it's like um hip hop, so part of it is on is on the judicial reform because it's about how much power the judiciary has in relationship to the executive branch and in Israel, the legislative branch because let's be clear in Israel, there is no constitution. Dana asked earlier well our our Modern and political leaders in Israel subject to follow the laws of Deuteronomy? (laughs) Well, no, they are required to follow the laws of Israel. So who decides what the laws of the land of Israel are? Who votes on what the law is in Israel? They don't have a constitution. So ironically, so who votes on what the law is in Israel? The Knesset, the Knesset. Is parliament. The Knesset, the members of Knesset are elected by the people. Follow me. Who, who is the prime minister related to the people in Knesset? The head of the major party in Knesset is the prime minister. Therefore, there is no separation between the legislative and the executive branch. What is the only check? on the unified executive legislative branch. What's the only check on that? The judiciary. judiciary. So the argument is you're giving ultimate control and power to people who were not elected by the people. That's the tension. Some people want more ability to influence the government. We are the people. We should elect the ultimate authority. They shouldn't be appointed. So that means who should have the ultimate authority? The Knesset and the prime minister because they are elected. Other folks are arguing we want protection from the government. Some are arguing we want the power through the government. We the people. Want power through government? That means limit the power of the judiciary. Other half of Israel is saying we want protection from the government for minorities, LGBTQIA people, Palestinians, Arabs, right? So we want protection from the government. The only way you can get that in Israel is through the judiciary. That's the conflict. Right now. Plus a whole bunch of stuff that's underneath that about why people are suspicious of one, suspicious of one or the other of those. Right? Okay. So that is what's happening. So th- just like here, this idea is under a lot of stress. And how it's gonna get figured out is now a real question that is really frightening right, to a lot of us, and in Israel as well. It is remarkable that the protests have been peaceful because they are passionate, and there's a lot of pain, and there's a lot of anger in the streets right now. They are waving Israeli flags. That was a conscious choice, to wave huge Israeli flags to protest and every march begins with the singing of Hatikva. They make Avdallah, and then they sing Hatikva, and then they have speakers and, you know, whatever. And it is a peaceful protest of tens of thousands every week. And it was an incredible thing to be a part of. And, and all I could think to myself was, why aren't we in the streets? Where's... Where's the protests against Roe v. Wade being overturned, abortion access being denied women in this country? Where where where's the pushback? Right. Again, So, right. OK, y'all cannot begin to understand <clears throat> what it is to be in the street with tens of thousands of people waving the flag of your country saying we will not stand for this. You can't compare it. I'm not saying we're not doing anything, but I was just very aware standing in the streets in Israel, like, where where are we? Like where's if you see a bunch of American flags and tens of thousands of people marching with them, are you expecting a peaceful protest in this country? No. Cause it's been right co-opted, right, by a certain like element of the population, right? By a an aggressive nationalist, militaristic Right. And, and that was the real, that was the power of standing with an Israeli flag because these people are saying we are deeply patriotic. We love this country. And because we love this country, we're not going home. Every Saturday night, we're going to drag our tired is here to this plaza. And everybody in Israel who's committed to this finds the march in their city. And if they're visiting, my friends came from Haifa and to stay overnight. They were staying over Saturday night and they said, okay, you have to, t- you have to take us to the protests in Jerusalem, right? Like that, that's what everybody does on Saturday night. They find the protests wherever they are, um, to, cause they're committed. And, and I just, that it was an incredibly inspiring thing to have a deeply patriotic, peaceful protest for change that I just wish we were having more of a robust presence of, of that here. I think in my should, spare time, I
0: think we should talk about why uh, we're not seeing uh, more people in this country standing up. You'll have discussions when you're in small groups. Uh, I know my wife is, you know, to the point that she's thinking of leaving this country and moving to Israel if Trump gets uh, elected. But we don't see people standing up. Um, and I, I'm not sure I understand why.
1: Yeah. Um I mean I think a lot of there are people who are trying to make these protests happen and when the thing that you get on the other side is police with assault rifles, those movements can't grow because they're immediately gonna get killed. Like but like real fear of the other side. Like the danger is very real. Are, are you saying the real fears of the police with rifles? Yes. Been in- yeah, I was. The fear of the police is very real. Leah saying. Um, Susan Cohen, did you want to say something? Just that I was in Century City protesting as a young lady when we were attacked by the police and beaten and tear gassed. And so it has happened here. Yeah, so Even Susan it, is saying she was protesting in Century City and um, the protesters were attacked by the police. Um, and- For for me, I also think, I also think that there's a real fear of the other side driving a truck through approach. I mean, I think there's a real fear of violence from the other side that prevents and, and the fact that guns are so prevalent in this country is a real issue. You know, we often think of that as an aside, but there are so many guns. You can't get a gun in Israel unless you're on active military duty. It is very difficult to get a gun in Israel. And everyone in Israel is trained to use a gun. Everybody's respectful of what a gun does. And someone made the point that everyone in Israel has served in the army. So everyone in Israel has served under a, a under a command structure and knows self discipline and self control has been taught that in a way that, that we haven't. I think
2: I'm very redundant, but I just wanted to say look at January 6th. Yeah. And that's what we're afraid of yeah. because it's not just the police. It is an entire body of people that feel that they have the right to kill anyone they disagree with. So the innocent ones that stand up for democracy in in the Talmudic way, in the Torah way, are are very vulnerable to irrational thought and AKAs for what, 18-year-olds or 16-year-olds, really? 13-year-olds? Yep. So it's, I mean, it's
1: a it's a very different cultural reality that we're living in. That's a very different cultural context that we're living in that that makes a lot of this different. Nick, do you want to say something?
2: Yeah, I think yes to everything that everybody else has said. I also think that the United States is in a different position in a lot of ways than other countries because we are one geographically massive um -hmm. and are decentralized in a lot of ways like our our, uh a lot of times when you do see large protest movements happening there's a reason they're concentrated in cities and are usually on a city or like a countywide basis we're just so separated from each other geographically and also terms and that makes it difficult to you know Organize and coordinate. Yep. And yep.
0: We go back to um, Chicago, uh, the Democratic National Convention. You saw people in the streets. Um, I'm just not sure we'll have marches for uh, minorities, uh, but as Jews, at least, we don't stand up for ourselves. The thing that Bothers me is as Jews, we stand up for others. We don't stand up for ourselves. Nor do we stand up as much for things that we supposedly believe in. We talk. We don't do.
1: I'm curious what that would look like. I stand up for myself by teaching every single day here. That's how I fight anti-Semitism. I teach Torah. Okay. So I mean, you know, it's like, it's like, what does that look like standing up for ourselves? Like I'm not, not sure what that means other than living a positive Jewish life. Openly and proudly.
0: Well, to me at least, standing up. Uh, I have this constant argument at home. Um, if you really are that anti-Trump, um, then go out and raise money, work for a candidate, do something. Um, it is not doing something. Be just being angry.
1: Right. So, but you said standing up for ourselves as Jews. What, what does well, I mean, that I, look like?
0: I don't see. Jews as much, uh, standing up, st- tremendous, we do tremendous things standing up for other minorities. We do not defend, uh, Jewish people. We do not stand up for anti Semitism in this country.
1: So, what does that look like, Jim? That's what, that's my question. When they say to me, Rabbi, what are we doing about anti Semitism, the rise of anti Semitism? What am I supposed to do about the rise of anti Semitism? I teach Torah. I live my life as a proud, out loud Jew. That's how I.
0: But most don't. Most don't. Most, most hide being Jewish. I don't know. Well, my observation.
1: Well, my Jews don't. So, I mean, I don't know what that means. Your
0: minority of Jews don't. The majority of Jews are quiet when they'll hear something negative. I I mean, um.
1: All right. So we need to be louder, (laughs) huh? Hard to, Jews be louder. So, um, Okay. All right. So, huh? Yes, we're at time. Um, can we ad- imagine a democracy, says Rabbi Art Green, where the first thing I'll do when I get into office will be copying out the constitution in longhand, a document that will then remain on the president's desk throughout her term? It might be a bit humbling to some of the people who have held that office. A favorite Hasidic reading of this sees the king here as the Rebbe. In order to be a true Rebbe for others, you need to have the teaching, the Torah, as it says in our Parsha, within you at all times and be able to read it all the days of, uh, and be able to read all the days of your life in it. This means not only that you read it each day, but that you must be able to use Torah as a way of understanding everything that happens in your life. You must find each day of your life in Torah. The training of rebbes thus parallels that of psychoanalysts. It is having undergone your own analysis that mm-hmm. qualifies you to work with others. Only when you can find all the days of your life within Torah are you truly ready to say Torah to others.
0: You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California.